Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mekaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 209 with Tom Bilhue. Tom brought it in a huge way. He has some big, intense ideas about the brain and possibility and how it all works in practical ways so you can get better at anything. Very engaging stuff. You'll learn, one, the WHOOP process for figuring out if you should persist or quit. Two, how to make the switch from discovering to developing your passion. And three, why identity drives behavior and not the other way around. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced here, you can find that on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep209. Now here is Tom's story. Tom Bilyeu is the co-founder of 2014 Inc. 500 company Quest Nutrition, a unicorn startup valued at over $1 billion and the co-founder and host of Impact Theory. Tom's mission is the creation of empowering media-based IP and the acceleration of mission-based businesses, personally driven to help people develop the skills they will need to improve themselves and the world. Tom is intent to use commerce to address the dual pandemics of physical and mental malnourishment. Tom regularly inspires audiences of entrepreneurs, changemakers, and thought leaders at some of the most prestigious conferences and seminars around the world, including Abundance 360, A-Fest, and Freedom Fast Lane. Tom has also been featured in many prominent media outlets and podcasts. I guess we get to join those ranks. Now, here's Tom. Tom, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you for having me on, man. I'm glad to be here. You know, in reading up about you, I got a real kick out of how you say your mission is to pull everybody out of the matrix. What does that mean and how's it going? (laughs) Uh, What it means is the Matrix to me, the movie is the perfect metaphor for a limiting belief system. So in the movie, it's really all about what Neo is able to believe he can do. And then once he believes it, then he can actually pull it off. I actually think that's really, really true for real life. And how's it going? I would say that I'm very much at the beginning of an incredibly long journey. So um, it's going well. I'm certainly excited, but uh, I am not fooling myself into thinking that this is something that's going to happen overnight. Understood. Well, so now I'm a bit familiar with Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory, but Impact Theory is newer, yes? So tell us, you know, what's that about and some core tenets of, of what you believe there? For sure. So Impact Theory is a traditional narrative studio, but we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. So if you want to think of us as a 21st century Disney, that's how we think of ourselves. So one thing that Disney, I think, did really well and it's been sitting in plain sight since the 1930s that nobody's replicated since is that every piece of content that they create fits into a brand ethos. So if I tell you that I'm going to go see a Sony movie or a Warner Brothers movie, you don't know anything about it. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something about that. You know the kind of feeling it's going to give you. You know that it's probably going to capture the magic of childhood, right is going to triumph, and all the things that go into the Disney brand. And they've just done an unbelievable job 
of being consistent with that. And nobody's really had a similar level of discipline to make sure that the brand itself stands for something. So that's what we're going to be doing with impact theory. And the wonderful thing for us is that we're living in a time where social media is going to be able to commentate on the kinds of themes and things that we want people to extract from the movies and TV shows and comic books and all the different uh, pieces of content that we'll be creating, the meaning that we're looking for people to extract from that. So, and that's been our first phase, which is to do the social side of things, to build the audience that ultimately is going to give us a negotiating leverage on the more traditional content side of things. Um, you know, being at Quest, one of the things that that just became abundantly clear to me is if you want to have negotiating power, you've got to have a community. And that was one of the things that, that really um, helped us be successful there. And so to answer the second part of your question, what are some of the main tenants that we have? It really is, it comes down to mindset. Like at the end of the day, this was me looking at the world and saying, okay, we're, we're living through two um, horrifying things right now, which one, you have the pandemic of the body, which is, I think, well understood. People get that. Um, you can look at, you know, what's going on from obesity and um, all the diet related diseases that we were trying to address at Quest. And then the other is the pandemic of the mind and looking at what's going on with anxiety, depression, crazy suicide rates, just, you know, a general sense of um, helplessness. And with Quest, we really said, okay, no BS, how would you end metabolic disease? And the answer was you had to make food that people chose based on taste and it happened to be good for them. So saying, hey, eat less and exercise more, it works for a very narrow band of the population, but we've been telling people that for, you know, whatever, 50, 60 years, and it's just not, we're, we're not winning. So I think at some point you have to acknowledge that, okay, while it may work on paper, it's not working in real life. So looking at the same side of the coin of you know mental um, malnourishment, if you will, what's going to be the no BS answer to how do you get people to break out of their limiting beliefs to really begin just a relentless pursuit of skill acquisition to make the, the things that they dream about, like how do you actually make those real? And I think the answer to that is ultimately narrative. It's fiction. It's the things that help build our cultural frame of reference that ultimately are the building blocks of our internal belief system. And it's the internal belief system that I think you have to change. And, you know, we can go into it if, if it's um, useful about the sort of neuroscience behind why that's true and um, why I'm so driven by that. But that in a very wordy nutshell is what <laughs> we're trying to do. That is inspiring stuff. You know, it's clear that you're playing a big game and you believe what you are about and it just liberates a lot of uh, excitement for those who are around you, I'm sure. Because I'm fired up already. I'm like, dang, that's intense. It, bring it on. <laughs> so I'm digging it. Well, so th yeah, let's talk about some of those beliefs. And so I know that you are a huge believer in Carol Dweck's work around mindset. And so we hope to have her on the show in due time. But let's hear about you know you and your experience for why you think that that is so important and just maybe unpack a little bit of what is a growth mindset and how have you made that work for you? Yeah, I love that you're bringing up Carol Dweck. So I 
only wish that I had had her book, you know, 15, 20 years ago when I began my own process of actually acquiring a growth mindset. And her book breaks it down really simply. So you've got two types of mindsets, a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And people that have a fixed mindset believe that their talent and intelligence are fixed traits. There's nothing that you can do about them. You're born with what you're born with and your life is about making the most of what you were given. A growth mindset, by contrast, is where people believe that their talent and intelligence are malleable traits and through discipline, practice, and a lot of hard work that you can shape yourself into essentially whatever you want to be. So, you know, whether you're born good at business or not, whether you're born um, as a talented athlete or not, like none of that matters where you start. What really matters is where you want to go and the price you're willing to pay to get there. And I think we all sort of instinctually recognize that human beings can get better. I mean, we're all born a lump of flesh. We can't hold our own head up. We have to wear diapers. We learn to walk and talk. And like, no matter what environment I put you in, you're going to learn that language, right? So mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether your ancestors spoke that language. You know, if you grew up in America and as an infant, I take you to France, you're going to learn French. Uh, if I took you to, you know, somewhere where they speak uh, an even more foreign language, Chinese or Japanese or whatever, like you're going to learn it and you'll speak it like a native speaker. So we get this sense that when we're kids, we're a pretty malleable um, entity that, you know, we can go in any direction. However, at some point, people believe, a lot of people anyway, believe that that sort of stops and it dries up and that you, while maybe till you're about 12 or 13, like you can really learn a lot of stuff, sort of after that, you begin to lose that ability. But modern neuroscience proves that it's just not true and that to your last dying breath, neuroplasticity is a thing that you actually can not only create new neurons, that you can create new connections between neurons, get better at something, whatever that thing is going to be that you want, whether it's salsa dancing or physics, like you can get better at whatever you want to do. Um, We don't have to get into right now whether you're, anyone can be world-class at anything. And I fully recognize that if you're 4'11", winning an NBA um, championship isn't going to be easy, but there are some pretty compelling stories of people that you know, just didn't show any natural talent, but they just work and work and work and get better. And that was my journey, man. I just, I was not a born entrepreneur. I came smack bang um, face to face with the fact that I wasn't a talented, naturally gifted filmmaker. And that was my goal. So from the time I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I only got into entrepreneurship as a way to finally control my art, to have control of the resources so that I could make movies the way that I wanted to make them. And in that process of realizing, oh, dear God, like I'm not actually good at this naturally, I had to find something like some mindset, some, I mean, unfortunately at the time I I didn't even think about mindset, but I needed something that would allow me to, to escape this sense that everything that my life had been building towards, which was, you know, to be a filmmaker and I just didn't have the talent for it. And when that felt like a permanent state of being, it made me feel really hopeless. And so that primed me, that opened me to anything that would allow me to believe something different, that there was some hope, some way that I could get better. And like I said, you know, Carol Dweck hadn't written the book Mindset yet, so I had to sort of fumble this uh, and put it all together piecemeal, but began to realize that you can get better, right? And if I was willing to work and practice and study and push myself that... I could grow. And 
that ultimately leads me to entrepreneurship, which then was really an amazing testing ground for me to see how good can I get at something that I have absolutely no natural inclination for. And over the course of 15 years, took myself from knowing precisely zero about business. I was not a kid that had a lemonade stand or anything like that. Um, going from that to building a billion dollar business and understanding exactly how we did it. That's exciting. It's cool. So kudos there. And so that's great stuff. I want to zoom in a little bit on what you said that when it comes to some folks who are still with the fixed mindset, the notion is they believe that, you know, hey, call it 12 or 13 or so, you know, you don't have the ability to learn and grow the way you did as a child. So let's dig into the neuroscience a bit. So what is different in our brains with regard to learning, growth, development, ability, you know, at age eight versus age 38, that is real versus just bogus? Well, I'll give you um, a layman's perspective. I'm, I, while I play a neuroscientist on YouTube, I'm not actually one in real life, but I've met some, just some of the most incredible minds in the world of neuroscience. And the whole concept of neuroplasticity is, is pretty interesting how it, the dynamic of it does change. And I think that failing to recognize that the way that we are able to learn as kids does change, um, to fail to recognize that is, is one of the things that leads people to believe that, you know, people are just sort of being doe eyed and intentionally naive. So it goes like this when you're young, because you're primed to make these new connections, as you begin to digest the world and figure out the way that things are, you really are, you don't have to undo anything. So everything is about that first connection. So you may learn what you're learning from many, many, many different angles uh, with absolute nuance. And there are things at work, like there's a region of the brain when you're young, dedicated to distinguishing the most subtle of sounds apart, which is why you learn language when you're young with no accent, but around 11, that begins to be reallocated towards other things. So if in the beginning you are, you know, you've got all the, the potential for all these different connections and the brain is really primed to, to let you go in any direction you want, which is one of the most fascinating things about human evolution is at some point, unlike other animals, which pre-program everything, which is why they come out already able to walk and do a lot of basic stuff that it takes humans years to learn, we decided to go for maximum flexibility because who knows what environment you're going to be born into. And, and that's really one of the things that makes humans so fascinating is our ability to be truly um, peak adaptation machines. Like we just adapt way better than anybody else. So that's how that the early brain is designed is to be able to go essentially in, in any direction. So we have things like that ability to really distinguish between these subtle sounds. But as we grow, there's the, the ever um, march towards specificity. So, hey, probably by 11, you don't need to learn different languages. Um, by 11, you, you've begun to um, have a, a region or a climate or a hunting style or whatever that is, that's going to be the trajectory now moving forward. So, areas of the brain which are designed to offer that maximum flexibility begin to get reallocated towards the specificity of what you're actually doing. So that's sort of how you go from this feeling like, man, you, you drop a kid into any environment and they really just, they get it. 
But when you take an adult, it's a little bit slower. Now, part of the reason that it's a little bit slower is because now you're unwinding things. So something, if you're learning something new, it may be at the expense of something else. So, and this is where we're sort of getting into the edges of my real fundamental understanding of the neuroscience. So I won't drag us too clumsily uh, into that. But if you, um, it's something like this, where you may have a thousand neurons dedicated to the concept of snow. Okay, you don't need a thousand neurons dedicated to that. So slowly they unwind and now they get reallocated to something else. And so anybody that's learned a foreign language later in life will really understand that. So for instance, I learned French when I was in um, high school and college, and then later I learned Greek. Now, when I like reach into my brain to pull out a word from either French or Greek, it feels like it's in a very different place than English. And I often feel like those two things overlap so that as I've learned Greek, it sort of unwound some of my French and replaced it with Greek, which is sort of a weird experience. But anybody that's done that, I think will recognize that sensation. So that's sort of at a really high level, um, what's going on neurologically that gives us that experience. But people get lulled into, because it is different, I won't even say necessarily more difficult because you have higher level cognition that kicks in as an adult, discipline, drive, things that actually make learning, I think, easier than when I was a kid. But there is that process of undoing one thing to, to do something new. But as long as you understand that the neuroplasticity is still real, that you still can adapt and learn, then you can really become a supercharged learning machine. Well, I dig that. That's exciting. And I appreciate the unpacking a little bit of, you know, something is different, but it's still for real present and able to go to work for you. So I'd like to get your take when it comes to the fixed versus growth mindset. How do you get yourself to stay in the growth mindset more often and just really milk it for all it's worth? For me, that comes down to your goals. If you have crystal clear goals and your goals are, you know, something that actually excite you, then you're very quickly going to adapt the, the mindset of what works, what's actually going to move me towards this thing. And when you have that, when it's a conscious decision that, you know, I should be doing and believing that which moves me towards my goals, you get unhung up on some of the things that trip other people up and where I think a lot of people get stuck is what they build their self-esteem around. So self-esteem matters very much. Everybody needs it. Pride, people need it. Ego, it's not a bad thing. It comes down to what are those things built around? So if your ego is built around being smart or being right, if you're proud of all the times that you had the right answer, then that's really fragile. It's really dangerous because now you're going to start doing stupid behaviors just to prove that you're right about something versus if you build your self-esteem around being the learner around identifying the right answer faster than anybody else, no matter who it comes from. Those are, to use um, Nassim Taleb's words, those are very anti-fragile. So the more that somebody attacks you or comes after you, you, you know, and saying something like, hey, you're stupid, when I hear that, I think, great, if, if now I know I'm stupid, in what way? Like, give me that piece of information and now I can <laughs> learn about that because that's where I build my identity, right? My pride is around going, oh, fantastic. Like, I'm, I'm not hurt by that comment as much as I'm invigorated because now I know the area that I need to learn in. Oh, Tom, I love that so much that you're stupid provides you with invigoration. And I could relate to that. Sometimes it's like the computer, if you find some 
uh, you know, over cluttering or malware or virus or something. It's like, ooh, ooh, we found something bad. This is awesome. I get excited by that because that means we are about to fix something, clean something up, and, and I'm about to have more kind of efficiency and performance there. And likewise, I'm excited if, if I catch, you know, you call it low hanging fruit or whatever buzzword you like. It's like, oh, there's something that's missing here. And by rectifying it, some great results are going to get unlocked. And that's a rush. Very well said. Totally agree. Oh, that's good. But did I cut you off? You were going somewhere as well. I think that, you know, you really summed it up well there. It's like, that's the exciting part, right? Like once you realize it's going to be a deeper level of efficiency that, okay, I've gotten this far with this virus. Now what happens when I clean it up? When you've got that mentality, then it's the excitement is what allows you to stay in the growth mindset longer. Oh, I dig it. Now let's hear it. You said, if you have crystal clear goals, which excite you, then you're just kind of cruising and you'll naturally gravitate toward the growth mindset, your beliefs and practices to get there. So I'd love to zoom in on what does it mean to arrive at crystal clear goals that excite you and in terms of like goal setting, smart goals, or what's the means by which you arrive there? Yeah, that that is a really important process. And I think people expect to discover what their passion is, to discover what their mission in life is. And it just doesn't work like that. So people need to switch their mind from thinking about discovering that stuff to developing it. So if you've read um, Cal Newport's book, So Good They Can't Ignore You, he really goes into this process in a super powerful way. Highly recommend people read that book. And what he talks about in there is that nobody's born with a passion. You have to really look inward, see a spark of interest, engage in that thing. And through the engagement, you'll find out whether or not you actually enjoy it, whether it's becoming a real fascination. And then if something's becoming a true fascination, then as you go down the path of gaining mastery, it's in that process in that deep level of engagement where you're really having to push through boredom to practice long after it's fun, that you're going to find out if this is something that's really a passion. And it's that gaining of mastery becomes a key part of understanding like why something becomes a passion. Like when you're good at it, when you're able to affect the world around you and the people around you, um, what the, um, oh God, I think it was Aristotle. <laughs> I'm almost certain it was Aristotle said, like the thing that really um, gives people deep fulfillment is when they have what he called technique, where it's something that you've worked your ass off to acquire a skill and that skill has use. So it's, it's that important element of this wasn't an easy skill to acquire, but I acquired it anyway. And now it's valuable. It actually has use. That's when something really becomes exciting. You could become passionate about it. And that kind of thing is where you can begin to have the tools that you need to really manifest that goal that you have, that thing that's off in the future and it's exciting. And that's why you have to be very careful about that vision that you begin painting for yourself. Because if it's something that doesn't excite you, if it's something that you aren't interested enough in the path, the skill set that you're going to have to acquire in order to keep fighting and pushing through the boredom and all that stuff that comes along with really building something um, on a grand scale, then you'll burn out and you'll tap out and you'll quit. And that's where so many people live their lives is they just get caught up in the mundane day to day because it's sort of everything is like, eh, it's like they're, they're not 
amped about anything. There's nothing that like really gets them jumping up out of bed and wanting to learn more and push. So identifying that thing that you're excited about, or I should say, uh, see, I even, I fall prey to that trap, like developing that, like deciding what that's going to be, really going down that path and finding out if it really is exciting. If it's not picking a new direction until you find something that you're really excited to develop and turn into something. Ooh, that's so good. And so then I'm thinking there's a little bit of a gray zone or a tension in that you referenced working on something, you know, long after it's fun. So in a way, it becoming boring is not an indicator that it's time to give up, but you also need to see if there's something genuine to engaging that spark of interest. So how do you walk that line? Well, there's a, another great book by Eric Barker called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. And he talks about this process called WOOP, W-O-O-P. He didn't come up with it. He cites the person that did. And unfortunately, I forget right now. But this is the thing that you want to go through to figure out if something is something you should be gritty about or you should quit. And W is wish. So what's that thing that you want to be in your life? The O is for outcome. Like, don't just wish about it because that's super vague. And in fantasizing, you can actually pacify yourself into feeling like you've done something when you really haven't. So what's the like really specific outcome? So let's say if your wish is, um, I want to be rich and famous. Okay, great. The outcome is I want to be rich and famous as a investment banker. Okay, fantastic. What's the obstacle? I know nothing about finance. Mm -hmm. And then what's the plan? How am I going to learn about finance? So I'm going to, you know, either go get my MBA or I'm going to take every Khan Academy class on finance, like whatever that path is going to be. I'm going to intern for four years at a VC. If when you go through that process, you go, I am so amped to do that. Like, this mm. is really exciting for me. Then, okay, you're on the right path. If at the end of that, you're like, oh, dear God, I have to go like for four years, I have to intern or study or whatever, then that's like immediately switch and find something where when you walk yourself through that process, you're excited to go through it and do it. Oh, that's powerful. And then I think that it's intriguing and interesting in that I have had those experiences where I go, oh, geez, that's a lot of work. <laughs> and I've gone through the same process. I didn't have a cool acronym at the time, but I've gone through a similar process and said, oh, yeah, that's a big one. Bring it on. And so it's really cool to codify that as a particular acid test that I guess if you say bring it on to everything and or uh, know that seems like a whole ton of work to everything, well, then I guess there's a bigger lesson about yourself that you're discovering. Yeah, very true. Well, so we talked about the growth mindset as being a key mental upgrade to really make things happen. You've talked about a number of others. Could you share uh, one or two other favorite upgrades to your mind that you think folks can benefit from having and doing so they can really get where they want to go? Yeah, one of the most important, and this is something that's really been on my mind lately, is how people are using routines and habits as a way to counteract, um, for me, it's laziness. So I'm just insanely lazy by nature. And my success has been in spite of laziness and not because I don't have laziness. And I think when people hear about, you know, how hard I work or how many hours I spend, they think, oh, well, you know, you must just not have any of these same lazy genes that I struggle with. And the truth is there was a time in my life um, in my early 20s where I would lay in bed for like three hours a day. I didn't have a job. And I was just lay there. 
and watch TV. Like literally it's so embarrassing. And I only tell people (laughs) because I hope that they see like at any point you can start making a different decision. And the decision that I made was to begin building in routines and rules, quite frankly, that governed my life. And those have continued to stack on themselves now, you know, for almost 20 years where I've really been building uh, not only a mindset, but a system that makes me very productive and allows me to, to achieve my goals. So everything for me starts with the belief that you should do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. So if laying in bed for three hours, moving towards my goals, I would do it. But since right now it certainly doesn't help, um, I have a rule that I get out of bed in 10 minutes or less from the time that I wake up. So um, that's one of them. I have just a, a crazy amount of routine. I go to bed at 9 p.m. like it's a religion. I don't set an alarm ever unless I have it. I'll say that probably five or six times a year I wake up to an alarm. So if I have something like a super early flight where it's like you just can't mess around, sure. But for the most part, I don't set an alarm. I get as much sleep as I need. I totally prioritize sleep. As soon as I wake up, I have 10 minutes or less to get out of bed. I immediately go to the gym and I start with the gym because I hate it. I absolutely hate working out, but it's so important for not only the physical um, longevity, performance, aesthetics, but also the cognitive benefits are, are just undeniable. So go immediately to the gym. Then I meditate. Then I do this thing I call thinkitating. Then from there, I read and just learning obsessively is one of the most important things anyone can do. And then after that, I have a list of the important things that I should be working on for my business. And I just go through that list. So things like that, like really using your um, habits and routines, like you can so optimize your life. I, I just, that's one I, I cannot overemphasize. That's so critical. Well, that is powerful. And so I want to know then in those moments where the rubber meets the road, I, I imagine now you've got the benefit of a habit and routine and neural pathways and all that just kind of working for you in terms of 10 minutes or less out of bed and going immediately to exercise. But in those moments when there it is, I don't want to do this, but I have established this rule and standard for myself. How do you rise above? The answer to that's identity. And this is one of those like really underutilized things. Once you understand that identity drives behavior, it's not the other way around. So the first thing I do when I want to change my behavior is look at my identity and say, okay, I'm the type of person that. I'm the type of person that prioritizes exercise even though he doesn't like it. I'm the type of person that doesn't waste time laying in bed even though it's super comfortable. I'm the type of person that is willing to suffer for the things that he wants, so on and so forth. But it always starts with that identity. And I tell as many people as I can that like that's my identity because then it kicks in this notion of wanting to be congruent with your identity, which causes massive um, discord in the mind when people say one thing and then do another, like just internally, that's so uncomfortable for people that it's a really, really powerful tool to create some pretty profound changes in behavior. Oh, I love that take on it because this kind of reminds me. So when I was a teenager, here's a fun fact. My hero and role model was Tony Robbins. I wanted to be Tony Robbins when I grew up as a kid and I I read his books, the library. And, and so that was me. And so, you know, he said something which I thought made a whole lot of sense about, you know, our lives change when our standards change. 
But you just took it to a whole other level in terms of your standard, not so much what I find to be unacceptable, but at an even more personal, ingrained level of this is who I am. And to do that is to kind of like violate myself. Yeah. And I mean, look, you've got your finger on probably the most powerful thinker in that realm. Like Tony gets identity. Tony understands how this kind of thing is what drives your behavior. And yeah, I mean, I, Tony's one of those guys, dude. I am such a big believer. I really think if people take his advice, if they listen to what he says, their life will be better. So I'm, I'm uh, not at all surprised that that's been somebody that's really been a driver for you. Okay. Well, Tom, I'm having so much fun here, but I want to make sure that we have not a five-hour conversation <laughs> and we get you to bed on time. <laughs> and so tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear quickly about some of your favorite things? Look, my thing is I want to bring as much value to your community as humanly possible. So I don't have a specific agenda other than I hope that people hear in my story that, look, I wasn't born anything. I was not voted most likely to succeed. My own mother, when I left for college, just quietly assumed that I was going to fail. And she was always my biggest cheerleader, like outwardly, but later confessed to me that, you know, she just thought that I would fail. I didn't show any signs. I was very lazy. Um, and so I, I don't think anybody was more surprised than those closest to me um, when I really started to make profound changes. And all the things that you know we just talked about were the ways that I did that. But if people are willing to make those changes, there's literally no limit to what they can do. Mm, so good. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? I'll give you some paraphrases. I, I really need to memorize these because like quotes are so important to me, uh, but most of them just sort of sit in my soul as paraphrases. So my favorite quote ever uh, is from um, Winston Churchill and it's the, you know, never, never, never give in, never yield to the um, apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. And it's the, the real quote is so much more powerful than that. But that notion of just never giving up, never giving in, always pushing, keeping going. And that even when the odds seem just so brutally stacked against you, that you, you keep going. And I, I really resonate with that. And then another one just sort of, uh, really coming at it from a totally different angle is learn the way broadly and you will see it in everything. And what that means to me is when you have a broad base of knowledge, going back to what I was saying earlier about spending time every day learning, learning something very specifically, learning something deeply, not just skimming across the surface, but really picking things and, and going hard on them. When you learn the way broadly, you'll see it in everything. Meaning like when you've got that just awesome base of knowledge, there's always a path. Like whatever it is that you encounter, there's always something that you've learned that's going to allow you to get around that. And those quotes sort of bookend um, my existence. And then one last one is the the one that I'll consider. Um, I'm writing a book right now, and this is the the quote that's going to open everything. And that is from Albert Einstein. And he said, the most important decision any human will ever have to make is whether they live in a hostile or friendly universe. And I love that he says it's a decision. And whatever you decide, by the way, you're going to see evidence of. So if you decide that everything is working against you, the evidence will be there to support it. And if you decide that everything is working for you, the evidence will be there to support it. Mm, thank you. And how about a favorite book? Ooh, outwardly, 
Um, the thing that I always recommend to people is Mindset by Carol Dweck. I think it's the most important book in the English language. Um, just to really give you something intriguing, the book that changed my life and is the reason that I read to this day was The Gunslinger by Stephen King. That book, I didn't think I liked reading. My dad convinced me to give that book a shot. And that book really showed me that everyone loves reading. The people that say they don't just haven't found the thing they like reading about. Uh, and that was made very clear. And then the book that really is my, um, in some ways, my my North Star is The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell, which is certainly the thing that gave me the idea for how we were going to build impact theory. So um, that has been very instrumental in my life. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something you use often that helps you do better? Then the internet, you're going to let me get away with that one? Like that <laughs> is, uh, I don't do like handiwork. So your traditional tools are all <laughs> out of the window. The internet is just such, such a powerful game changer. And having grown up without it and really not, um, the internet sort of existed by the time I graduated college, but not really. So I have a very keen awareness of just how powerful and time-saving it is. All right. And how about a favorite habit? Ooh, uh, getting as much sleep as I need. And follow up on there. Just how much is that for you? About six hours is my average. And so this is six true hours of conked out unconsciousness and thus the actual in bedtime could be a bit more. Uh, well, I fall asleep very fast. And once I wake up, I'm out of bed. So if six <laughs> hours is my actual conked out unconsciousness, I'm probably in bed for about six hours and 15 minutes. And that's actually deadly accurate. I fall asleep almost instantly. That's cool. And could you share of all the things that you communicate, is there a particular nugget that seems to really connect and resonate with folks, a Tom original that just gets folks nodding their heads and saying, yes, that's right. That's interesting. So the one thing that, that I often get a reaction from, and not ironically, I guess, but interestingly, it was something you reacted to earlier, which is that notion of what you build your self-esteem around matters. And that's one of the things that, that I think, um, not a lot of people are talking. In fact, I've never heard anybody else talk about that. And I think that that is so critical. And when people tell you like, oh, don't have an ego, um, pride is one of the seven deadly sins. Like I, I'll just say that people kill themselves when they believe that they can no longer feel good about themselves ever again. So I don't think it's not a bad thing. I think everybody needs it. I think that what you build your self-esteem around though matters tremendously. And it matters from the position of how you make other people feel. So if, if you're coming from an arrogant place, from a place of I'm better than you, um, then that, that's a pretty gnarly way to build your self-esteem. You're going to turn other people off. It's very fragile because inevitably you're going to meet somebody better than you, stronger, faster, whatever the case may be. Um, but I think people need something and they need something that's going to propel them forward, that the more they engage in that prideful behavior, the better their life is going to be. And, and you know, the, the, the only thing I have ever thought of that meets that criteria is being um, prideful about being a learner, to be humble enough to always be willing to admit when you're wrong. Like those things, when that makes you feel good about yourself, like you're in a really good position. Okay. And Tom, if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? at Tom Bilyeu across pretty much every social um, at forward slash Tom Bilyeu at YouTube. Uh, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. I'm doing it all. And do you have a final 
challenge or call to action you'd issue to folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah. I mean, if you aren't trying every day to be a linchpin to really figure out what you need to do to become absolutely great at your job, you're missing an opportunity to fall in love with yourself and your skill set, like really wanting to push yourself, really wanting to become great at what you do is one of the most intoxicating things that a human being can do. You know, and hey, the going back to Tony, Tony Robbins says, and I think this is so smart, that one of the most foundational pieces to happiness is progress. So if you really want happiness, you want that deep and lasting fulfillment, getting great is just a fundamental part of that. And I think that, you know, a lot of times people feel like they're being taken advantage of by their job. And so they miss that opportunity to really commit to becoming exceptional at something. And so if you feel like by getting great that you're over delivering to your workplace, man, it's time to find somewhere else because there is somewhere where you could engage at that level, where it is this beautiful symbiotic thing where you're working hard for yourself to do something amazing for yourself and it happens to be great for the company and you believe in what they're doing and your efforts are recognized. Like there, there is a job out there where it is a truly meaningful and empowering experience. And I encourage people to find that you spend 50% of your waking hours at your job. So to not feel connected to a purpose, to not feel like your efforts have meaning and are appreciated, uh, is just really, really a sad way to go about it. And man, getting great is fun. So I hope people tap into that. Awesome. Well, Tom, this has been such a treat, just mind expanding in the good, legal, safe way. So (laughs) thanks so much for sharing it and good luck with Impact Theory and all you're up to. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know, many of the things that Tom shared really just connected and resonated with me as just true, like, yeah, guy. And I feel like this is one to listen to perhaps on multiple occasions. But one I'll zero in on is just about the identity and how that can drive behavior in terms of I am the kind of person who, because then it just makes it all the more real and I guess high stakes and motivating in terms of a given decision to slack off or be less than you'd like to be. It just reflects on who you are at the core. And it just seems like it packs a whole lot of extra oomph in those tricky moments when the motivation may be low and the stakes are there. And so this amps it up. I think it's well worth pondering and integrating into your world. And if you want to check out in some detail, some of the wisest bits Tom had to share in the transcript or the links to some of those pieces, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep209. And I do hope you'll stick with us for our next episode. It is Tina Selig out of Stanford. She is bringing sexy back to brainstorming if it was ever gone. Maybe remember previous conversation. She has a wealth of wisdom and expertise on creativity, good ideas, getting them, collaborating with folks to generate them. It's a good time. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Awesome.